Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, so good to see all of you today. I always love that time and uh, just watching everyone get to know each other and catch up a little bit on the week, at least as much as you can in a few minutes, right? But uh, it is good to have you here today. As Jerry said, my name is Paul. I'm the lead pastor for Genesis. And if you're new with us, uh, a special welcome to you and also to those uh, watching online today. Uh, it's a good day. It's good to be uh, here at Genesis with you. Um, I guess you could say uh, that I'm thankful that God doesn't always give us the complete picture. And here's why. Two and a half years ago, uh, the leaders of our church decided to do this thing uh, that we call greater around here. The goal was to raise seven and a half million dollars over two years. You've heard us say this so that we could make disciples, reach our cities and change the world. We want to reach even more for Jesus Christ, make the name of Jesus greater. And, and so two and a half years ago, God asked us to step out in faith uh, to undertake a, a project like this a, as a church family and to trust him with such an event. But if God would have told me at the time, hey, by the way, um, this two-year event is going to coincide with a worldwide pandemic that not only is going to bring sickness, but also going to tear apart some churches and turn everything you've ever known upside down. I would have been like, no, thank you, right? I mean, like circle back with us in a few years because I, I don't think the timing is right for that. I, I really, I think if would have known what was coming, we probably would have just slammed on the brakes and said, we'll try again later, but we didn't. Uh, we trusted the Lord. Uh, you trusted the Lord with us and moved forward in faith. And a few weeks ago, we announced that we not only hit our goal, but we were able to surpass our goal. And it doesn't make sense, right? I mean, it doesn't. When you think about it, uh, to do something like that, to accomplish something like that, especially in really what was two pretty uncertain years but God kind of does things like that, doesn't he? Like he just shows up in moments. As a friend of mine says, it's just God showing off, proving what he can do, what he is faithful and capable of doing. I just wanted to take a moment because I haven't had a chance yet to say thank you, Genesis. Uh, thank you. Thanks for being a part uh, of this great project with us. Thank you to all of you who sat with me, prayed with me, uh, joined with me and others and making sacrificial commitments and gifts to greater these past couple of years. Many of you prayed, many of you changed financial plans, took a huge step of faith with us. There were many of you who jumped in along the way and said, you know what? I want to be a part of this. We want to be a part of this. You gave faithfully. You help us surpass this huge goal so that even more can find their way to Jesus. Thank you. I, I love you. I am so grateful, right? Thank you. Um, I am so... I'm so thankful. I, I love this church. I'm, I'm thankful to say that this is my church family, that I'm a part of it too. Uh, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of our church. And I'm excited to see where the Lord's going to lead us. And uh, we are trusting him. We've been trusting him for the past couple of years. We've been able to do some generous things, give away more money than we've ever given away before. We've got ministries that are growing. We've got some fun things we're going to do around the Carmel campus this summer that we're excited about. And we're still praying about a new location for our Noblesville campus as well. But God's still leading we're going to follow, and I'm thankful for that opportunity. You know, I, I was thinking this, there, there are so many things that compete for our time, attention, our affection. You might even say that there are a lot of things that we worship, right? I mean, if, if we're just honest with ourselves, there are so many things craving our attention and our, and our worship. Here at Genesis, we're doing everything we can to make it all about Jesus, 
Uh, no apologies. Like we want to be people who are fully surrendered. We want to be a church that is fully surrendered to Jesus and whatever he asks us to do because he deserves it all. He alone, as we've been singing this morning, is worthy of that worship. I want to look at a passage with you today that reveals some things about Jesus uh, that remind us that he is the one who's worthy to be worshiped. But I also want to look at the life of a woman who will help us see that there really is only one who's worthy of our worship and it is Jesus Christ. And so if you've got your Bible, uh, turn to John chapter 12. Uh, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament opens up with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We sometimes call them gospels. The word gospel just simply means good news. The gospel of John, John was a disciple who spent significant time with Jesus. He has copied down this word so that we can know Jesus better and understand who he is. And so we've been reading John all year long in this series here at Genesis we call Grow. Uh, again, reading, studying through the book of John together. We've got two goals in this series. I've been praying them. I know some of you have. Number one, we're praying that Jesus will grow our faith in him as individuals. But secondly, I'm praying that he'll grow us together as a church family. And I don't know if you remember the plants that we handed out the end of January. Did any of you get one of these? Uh, whether yours is still alive or not, this was our little plant about a week after we took it home. I took this picture yesterday. Can I show it off to you? Uh, our plant has now moved outside into this pot. And I'm excited about it for a couple of reasons. One, because I'm 46 right? And you just start getting excited about these things the older you get. But I also, I look at it too, and I just think, you know what, this is like God is answering these prayers. Like he is growing our faith together. He's growing us as a church family. We have no idea where he's going from here, but I want to be a part of it. And I hope you do as well. Now, after today, we're going to take a break from Grow for the summer. We'll come back to John in August, but starting June the 5th, we're, we're starting a new series that we're calling Summer of Love. And uh, we're going to dive deeper into the topic of love this summer, the love of God, our love for each other, see how these biblical principles can make us better lovers and, and better disciples of Jesus. This is what we also, when we enter into the summer, internally, we have this word that we call switcheroo. And it just basically means this, like any given week here at Genesis, we're preaching the same thing at both campuses. Like you can hear basically the same text. Well, this summer we're, we're mixing it up a little bit so that like if I preach in Noblesville one week, I'm going to probably come to Carmel the next week and preach the very same message, but it'll, it'll change. So what we've done just to make it easy is we've got a schedule for you today when you leave. In case you're someone that goes back and forth between the campuses and it'll just help you understand what we're preaching on this summer at both of our campuses. And there's also instructions because we know that a lot of people are traveling this summer for how you can engage online, all right, so that you can stay a part of what we're doing. So you'll get one of these when you leave today so that you can follow along with us. But John 12 today, all right, if you've got your Bible, uh, John 11, if you remember, Jerry taught last week ends with Lazarus walking out of the tomb alive. Uh, within days, Jesus is back in Bethany for a meal with Lazarus. Mary and Martha, their brothers and sisters. And scholars believe that this meal in John 12 was served on a Saturday evening, catch this, with the next day being Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. Basically, we are entering into the final week of Jesus' lives. Now, before that, again, we're at the Saturday evening meal. Lazarus was there. The gospel writer Matthew tells us the disciples were there. Mark writes about this. He says that this home actually belonged 
belongs to Simon the leper or most likely Simon the former leper. Otherwise, he's probably not hosting the dinner. Did Jesus heal him? We're not told directly, but we're left to assume that. So let's start there. John chapter 12, beginning in verse one. Notice the details. Pay attention to the details that John includes. He says, six days before the Passover. Passover's Thursday, all right? So we've got Saturday evening. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. That's kind of a big deal. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then, as John notes, Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it out on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, and the crowd goes, boo, right? Who was later to betray Jesus, betray him, objective. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I want to ask you to try and put yourself into this room, if you would. All right, where this meal is taking place see what the guests saw, uh, try and hear what these guests were hearing, smell what they smelled. John says they were reclining at the table, which sounds like bad manners, all right? But that's not so, that's not what's happening. When we think of Jesus eating with his disciples, many of us picture something like this. We picture Da Vinci's uh, painting of the Last Supper, the disciples all sitting at this long table together, but that's 15th century, now, in the first century, this would have more likely been the picture. Sitting at a low-lying table, Jesus and his disciples and the other guests that were a part of this event, leaning up against the table, reclining against it with their feet extending away. This is a very special meal. And as John records, Mary walks into the scene, not to be confused with Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the friend, and takes this bottle of perfume, or what does John call it? Nard. Ladies, by a show of hands, how many of you have a bottle of nard sitting on the dresser at home right now, right? None of you. Because what is it today? I mean, maybe you got it for Valentine's Day or something. You have, what, what's, it's Chanel, right? Or J'adore. Like nard doesn't have the same ring to it. Like the marketing campaign, it just never got off the ground. But that's what Mary has, all right? She kneels at the feet of Jesus. She pours this perfume on his feet. She wipes it off with his hair. Here's something interesting about this perfume particular event. Three of the four gospel writers capture this, all right? It's included in their gospels, all right? And, and so automatically, you've got to ask yourself, what's so significant about this event that they're willing to write it and to capture the details? Well, there's a number of things at play here. We could drill down into any one of them. I'm going to mention a few, and then we're going to kind of focus on one. But first of all, if you have a dinner with a guy like Lazarus, who used to be dead, and now he's not, that's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, that, that's a, an event, that's a dinner worth talking about. So there's one reason to include it. But also, as you can imagine, there's a lot of symbolism in Mary's Actions. She is sitting at his feet, which is often what a disciple did at the feet of a rabbi who would sit while they were they were teaching. Mary's anointing, all right, the head, uh, anointing the head of somebody was, was a, a hospitable gesture. 
uh, especially if you were one of the hosts. It's a dry, arid climate. So to provide some bit of oil, what well, was a bit of reprieve, it was a bit of refreshment. But what makes this even more unique is that the nard uh, or perfume that Mary used was extremely valuable. It was imported from a, a place in northern India, uh, something that was also used for medicinal purposes, but something else, and I think this is probably most fascinating of all, nard was used often to embalm a dead body in preparation for burial. Is it any coincidence that Jesus will be in the tomb one week from now? But there's at least one more thing that makes this event interesting, and we, we, we briefly mention it, but Judas is there. He's a little mixed up and that he sees this amount of perfume that Mary uses. John records that it's worth a year's worth of wages. Some translations say 300 denarii or 300 days of wages. Put that in Hamilton County terms. Think $47,000 if you think about the median income here of perfume. We ain't talking about Old Spice, all right? This is expensive, valuable stuff. When you think about the value of Mary's gift, The point is, this is a really big deal. Mary's actions and gift are absolutely astonishing. And like Judas, I'm sure some of the disciples were just as stunned by Mary's generous display, the gift that Mary poured out. Again, she gave Jesus an extravagant gift, the best gift she had. And the point that I'm trying to make is that when we think about worship, when we think about the lives we're living, when we think about the life that Jesus has called us to, I I think what Mary does here is really a pretty great definition of worship. One that kind of goes like this, that worship is bringing our best gift to Jesus. When we talk about worship in its purest form, and not just the songs we sing, because that's a part of worship too, but when we think about the life that we live, the attitude that we bring, when we think about our purpose and our identity, worship is bringing our best gift to Jesus. Mary's gift may have been memorable because of its cost and value, but I'm not necessarily talking about just financial gifts here, because I want to show you another act of worship that's also present in this story that's easy to overlook. We see it in verse 2. Because again, there are many people present at this meal. Another is Martha. And look what she's doing. It says that Martha served. Martha served. Martha was serving the dinner. This was her act of worship. Now, if you know anything about Mary and Martha, they were sisters. You know there's some history here. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, there's another occasion. There's another meal being served. Mary and Martha were there. Uh, Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach, enjoying fellowship with other people. Martha was out working, making all the preparations. She was setting the table. She was cooking the food. And there's this instance in Luke where she comes to Jesus and she complains. She says, you know, Mary's sitting here, sitting at your feet. I'm here doing all of the work. She says, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that I'm doing all the work? What a sisterly thing to do. Like, mom, like, mom, like she's not helping. All right, but look at Jesus' response to her in Luke chapter 10, verses 41. He said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And because of that, Martha kind of gets a bad rap. 
Like how dare she be the one always busy, always working, always cleaning when she should be talking and relating. If you're a a Martha, I know we got a lot of men and, and women who could fall into this category of Martha. You have the gift of hospitality, the gift of, uh, of helps. You know, you think people might tell you, you need to be a little bit more, more like Mary. Don't be such an introvert. Like get in there, get with the people. But we need Marthas. Like without Marthas, we'd all go hungry. Now in this case, Jesus was admonishing Martha not for her work ethic, but in Luke chapter 10, he's admonishing her because of her attitude. He was effectively saying, Martha, Like you're doing what you love to do. Your sister Mary is doing what she loves to do. Don't be angry with her because you're having to work in this moment. Basically, if you're gonna serve, do it with the right attitude. Like realize who it is that you're serving, who it is you do these things for. And I I think Martha got the message. I think like, I, I think that's why it's here. I think it's why it's in John because this time she's not complaining, she's serving She's giving of her life and using her gifts with the right attitude. She's giving her best gift. You could say that her service was her act of worship. I, I want to just stop there for a moment. And I want to just say thank you to those of you who have just made it your goal, made it your aim to say, I, I want to be a servant of Jesus Christ in this world. I, I want to take my neighborhood. I want to take my workplace. I want to take my school. I, I want to take this opportunity that's before me. And I, I want to show up really in the same way that Jesus does with a, a, a towel over my, my arm. And, and I'm here. I'm ready to serve. This is my act of worship. I, I want to thank you for living your life intentionally. Uh, I think about this story. I shared it with some of our, our volunteers this morning. Uh, We baptized a woman by the name of Sarah at our Noblesville campus a few weeks ago. Uh, The woman that baptized her, Amanda, has been a part of Genesis for a long time. Their co-workers, Amanda's been investing in Sarah. She's been praying with Sarah. She's been doing life with Sarah. Amanda got to baptize Sarah on Easter Sunday. Like this this is Amanda's form of worship. She says she wants other people to know Jesus Christ. She's living her life intentionally. Like when you invest in people, it's one of the ways that we worship Jesus. Thank you to those of you that serve in Gen Kids. Gen Kids, we, we don't do child care here at Genesis. We are revealing, we are pointing to Jesus each and every week when, when we invest in the kids of our church. Like these are, are the future of our church. Like studies show that if a kid decides to follow Jesus, this shouldn't surprise any of us, that it has the potential to radically change the trajectory of your life. When you sign up to serve in a place like Gen Kids, you are worshiping. Jesus. You are, you are saying, I am doing this for Jesus. I want to be a reflection of Jesus into the life of these kids. And the same is true when you lead a group in your home. The same is true if you serve on the stage or in the back of the room or behind the scenes or in the lobby. No one may ever see you. The same is true when you live your life intentionally with the people that God's going to put in your life even this afternoon when you walk away from your serving is an act of Jesus. When we serve, we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Martha was serving. This was her act of worship. In fact, in this case, John's not trying to contrast Mary's gift, her expensive gift with Martha's. No, instead, Mary's gift is set against really the backdrop and the attitude of Judas and his complaint. Look again at at verse 4. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objective, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. And he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but John records because he was a thief and as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, there's a lot on the surface here, 
All right, Judas questioned it. It sounds somewhat reasonable. I mean, after all, a year's worth of wages, that's a lot of money. It could have done a lot of good for charity. But John goes out of his way to tell us that Judas doesn't really care about the poor, but he was saying this to get more money for himself. But remember, at the time of this event, John would not have known that. And so John is looking back All right, he has put all of the pieces together. He has seen what ultimately happened with Judas and now he's he's commenting on him. Basically, like if at the time Judas was stealing money and they knew it, he wouldn't be keeping the piggy bank. All right, but he's he's still keeping the piggy bank at the time. In fact, if you go to the Last Supper in just a few days, when Jesus says one's going to betray me, no one said, Oh, it's Judas, right? I mean, we all know it's Jesus, he's stealing money out of the piggy bank. They didn't know that. At the time, Judas' reaction might have seemed appropriate. Again, why not sell this perfume and give the money instead to the poor? But Jesus is going to point out that's really a false equivalency. That's not the point. This is Mary money. These are her resources. It's her perfume. If she wants to spend it in worship for Jesus and who he is, instead of giving it to the poor, Jesus says that's an acceptable and effective use of the gift too. Look at verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, should we take care of the poor as Christ followers and as a church? Absolutely. And we're making every effort to be as generous as we can. This this is a charge given to Christians and to the church time and time again. There are are few groups of people that the Bible regularly speaks and routinely talks about the church caring for, the, the hurting, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, the poor. It's our duty. But does that mean that we individually or collectively should give every dollar that we have to the poor? Well, Jesus seems to say no, that, that it's okay to spend money, to give money out of a form of worship. It's okay and effective to use dollars in worship services and Bible studies and buildings and evangelistic efforts and other things, other ministries that are helping people find their way back to God. But in front of his disciples, Jesus is affirming that her gift is indeed an extravagant gift of worship. So since we're focusing on Mary's gift, what is it? Like, What is it that made her go to such lengths to pour out this gift on the feet of Jesus, this excessive gift? And I said early on, I want you to try and put yourself in the story, if you could. Picture this, like, imagine, take a look around the room. Who's there? Who have we mentioned? What's the occasion? Well, first of all, I see Simon, the former leper. It's his house. His life has been radically changed by Jesus Christ, so he's there. We know there are 12 men there, disciples, eventually apostles, these men who have been with Jesus for three years. They've watched Jesus turn water into wine, heal the nobleman's son, cure lepers, heal the blame, miraculously feed the the crowd. And and then they themselves were sent out by Jesus. They were driving, driving demons out from the possessed. All of these disciples whose lives will be radically changed and transformed by Jesus at the center of it all was Lazarus. He's there, Lazarus who was dead. All right, he was dead just recently in the tomb for four days. Jerry said last week, his body stinketh, right? According to the King James Version, Mary, Mary, Mary's dearly beloved brother, Lazarus, you know, Jesus healed him. He, he died, all right, but Jesus is gonna raise him from the dead. Lazarus is gonna become this new poster child for life in Christ. I mean, think about the symbolism. He was dead and brought back to life. You know anybody like this? 
This room is filled with a bunch of Lazaruses right now, like the Apostle Paul reminds us of it in Ephesians chapter 2, because here's what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the, the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, Who's it on? It's on God because of his great love for us. God who is rich in mercy. Here's what he did for us in Jesus. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Paul says it is by grace that you have been saved. That, that's what God accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. That's the life and salvation that he offers to each of us. And when we put our faith and trust in him, we can claim the words of that great truth as well, that we are made alive in Jesus Christ. We used to be one thing. We are now a brand new thing and nothing is ever going to change. Again, that's what God accomplished in Jesus. And so he invites us to the table as well to recline with him, Jesus and other believers. Mary is probably watching this dinner unfold. She's taking it all in, and then she got an idea. How? We don't know for sure, but somehow she remembers that she has this expensive jar of perfume that she's been holding on to. What's she been saving it for? Um, a time of need? Maybe a rainy day fund? Maybe a death? Was she going to use it or did or why didn't she use it for Lazarus' death? And in this moment, she says, what am I waiting for? Why hold back now? Who else is worthy of such an extravagant gift? And John records that she poured her gift out on Jesus, not just a little. She probably could have sprinkled just a bit, saved the rest of it. Don't use all of it in this moment. The gospel writer Mark records that it was an alabaster jar and just to make sure that she didn't change her mind, some speculate that Mark notes that she broke the jar and poured out the nard on the feet of Jesus. There's no taking it back. And the fragrance enveloped him. I imagine it filling the entire room. It has been said that kings back then were known for their appearance they were known by their name and their family lineage. They were known by their clothing, but also, get this, their smell. It's Saturday evening. Tomorrow, Jesus is going to saddle a donkey and ride into Jerusalem. A crowd of people are going to gather and proclaim Hosanna, ready to crown him king. Is there any chance they caught a whiff of Jesus as he rode down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem? They smelled a king. But Jesus was thinking about the cross. He's thinking about the tomb. God in heaven, give us a heart like Mary's. That kind of faith and passion that we would all get the point and realize we get one life to live and Jesus Christ is worthy of all of our worship. We spend so much time, I'm guilty of this, and attention and affection on things that have no or little eternal value 
And for many of us, we've spent the last two years wishing, I have, hoping things to get back to normal after being so cautious, after being, you know, uh, separated from people that we love, after missing out on travel and school and birthday parties and dinners and so many things. And now that COVID seemingly seems to be kind of in the rear view mirror of life, most of us, isn't it true, have been brought back to our old way of living and we are just living full speed without little preparation or discernment of, wait, is this what I want? Is this the life that I want to live? Is this the pace that I want to keep cruising at? Or what about this? Would people look at my life? Would people look at your life right now and say, that's a person fully focused, sold out, surrendered, living for Jesus. He is our risen King and Savior He's the only one worthy of our worship. We've been looking at so many different angles of Jesus these last few months that he is the light of the world, right? John talks about this. In a world full of darkness, Jesus is light. He provides hope, hope in a, a somewhat hopeless and aimless at times sort of world. He's the good shepherd, all right? He's the good shepherd that leads us to safety. He provides for us. He's our protector. He's the bread of life, the one that nourishes, the one that satisfies. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the resurrection and the life Jesus Christ overcame the grave. We are spared from eternity and punishment and hell, and we are given, we are offered the gift of heaven and life forever with Jesus Christ. Finally, and we'll talk about this more starting in August, he is the giver of the Holy Spirit because Jesus came to earth and ascended into heaven. He promised that he would send another one to take his place, one who would be with us, a counselor who would be with us forever, the Holy Spirit, the one who leads us and guides us. And here's one more thing that I think is especially interesting. You know, Mary, at this moment, she didn't have all the information. Now, a study of her life in John is kind of fun to see how her attitude and perspective changes over the chapters. There's something significant happening in her faith when she pours out this fragrance on Jesus. But she didn't have all the info. I think she knew something was coming. She knew the tensions were rising. I think she knew her savior and friend was going to die, but she was standing on one side of it. You and I were on the other with the cross and the empty tomb. We get a more complete picture of the work and the love of Jesus and really have even more reason to give and to offer him our very best in worship. He is worthy. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for people like Mary and her service, Martha and her service and actions, her demonstration, how we can look at something like this and we can think about how it applies to our lives. And I'm gonna trust you, Lord, with that application today for every single one of us. But most importantly, we thank you for Jesus, his life, what he knew and what he realized was coming. He knew my rejection He knew all of my questions, my doubts, my self-centeredness. And he took it all and he bore it on the cross. 
and he gave his life as a perfect and as a pleasing sacrifice and you raised him from the dead and we have life and we have hope and we have a reason and we have a purpose and we have a calling here in this world. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus. He alone is worthy of our worship. You alone are worthy of worship in our lives. Have your way in us and in this place today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Will you stand with us? Let's worship Jesus together.